Hello, and welcome to the Great Birth Rebellion podcast, where we grapple with current research to help you get the best out of your pregnancy, birth, and postpartum journey while still challenging the dominant birth culture. I'm your host, Dr. Melanie Jackson at Melanie the Midwife, and I'm joined weekly by my co-host, B from Core and Flora Store, and this is the Great Birth Rebellion. Welcome everybody to this week's episode of the Great Birth Rebellion. You're here with B and I and our very special guest, Joe Hunter, who, I, I mean, I don't even think I need to introduce her, but, but Joe, I do a little fun thing if I just try and introduce people based on what I know and I'll let you fill in the gaps. <laughs> I, I probably need to go here because Joe and I did uni together. Please, take it away, B. No, yeah. I'm muting. I'm muting. You do it. No. I just remember, so I did my first placement at Liverpool Hospital and then my second and third year was at Nepean with you. And I just remember like you copped it all for us because you were doing like stuff on the side and they knew you wanted to go into home birth. And I was like, oh, so glad Joe's here to take the brunt of everything. It was 15 years ago, guys. It finished 15 years ago. So it was exactly 18 years ago that we started. Exactly. I remember starting private practice and GPSs were only just being invented. And dinosaurs now. Yeah. I remember that. um, The first time I ever heard of Facebook was you, Bernie. (laughs) You actually actually loaded it onto my phone for me. Look at us. Isn't it funny the things you remember about friendships and like the other like the pieces? I remember being, we went to a conference in the Blue Mountains. I reckon it was our first year. And Nikki Leaf and Carolyn Home and everyone was there. And we did the VE dance. We did a bit of whole dance and it had VE actions as part of it. And we all stayed in this house together. I'm not, I'm not putting my hand up. I don't think I was there for that. <laughs> <laughs> There you go. That's all anyone needs to know about. <laughs> well, so, okay, backstory is that B and Joe studied their Bachelor of Midwifery together in Sydney. That's how you guys met. I think, Joe, you and I pretty much sort of kicked off private practice almost at the same, simul- yeah, at the same time simultaneously here in Sydney, up in the Blue Mountains, and still going at it. Um so, Joe, let me give me let me give you an introduction instead of a whole lot of beast memories of you. Uh, so, Joe Hunter, private midwife, co-creator of the Birth Time documentary, and the reason why I've invited her here today, mother of four as well, and just recently brand new homeowner and renovator. Um, but today I really wanted to talk to Jo. She did her honours work in the experience of privately practising midwives in Australia who have been reported to APRA, to the HCCC. And, you know, B and I have recently um, been the recipients of our first APRA report for the podcast. Uh, so, you know, this was kind of good timing. I reached out to Jo. I was like, hey, Jo, we've just been reported don't suppose you want to have a chat with the rest of Australia about this process of vexatious reporting. So Joe's currently the expert on this, you know, for privately practicing midwives. Joe's work's the only work really that's been done in this field. And so we're blessed to have you here, Joe. Oh, thank you. Thank you for having me. Did I miss any any very important details in your introduction? Not at all. 
Apart from the dream that you had of me running down Beef Farm Road with no bra on. Can I tell it? <laughs> sure. Okay. Okay, I'll tell it. So that's right. The other part of the backstory is Joe was one of the midwives who attended my both my births. Uh, Joe and I used to live very close in proximity in, in, in the Blue Mountains. And for my first, very first uh, pregnancy, which was almost 11 years ago now, uh, my my mum had very fast birth, as did all of my cousins and aunties. So in my head, I was going to have this really quick birth and and I needed to have somebody close, close by. So Joe was close and I and I had this dream one night of um, I went into labour and I was in my house in the pool labouring and someone called Joe and said, Joe, you've got to come down here, the baby's coming out. And in my dream, Jo jumped out of bed in her jammies. It was pouring rain. She just sprinted out of her house. I could see her house. I could see her street. I could see her pajamas. And she was running barefoot in her pajamas. And um, in the dream, the thing that really stood out was that she wasn't wearing a bra. <laughs> and your boobs were like bouncing around, like not even in unison. They were just all <laughs> over the shop. <laughs> Sounds about right. So they're bouncing around. Have, and you, was, you have asymmetrical breasts, Joe. What a surprise! Not asymmetry, just like incoordinate bouncing. Yours are bees on a treadmill. Yours are bouncing. I'm trying to. I'm trying to test it out. Don't all breasts move like that as we as we rock? I guess. But, but she was like that. Yeah, it was a. There was a. Um. What. Well, it was a Mexican wave type, yeah, and there was back and forth thing and up and down. It was under your armpits, everything. <laughs> And um, and you were sprinting, like sprinting like I wouldn't have expected Joe to sprint. And then you ran in the door, sopping wet because it was raining too, like huffing and puffing. And um, in just the time that it took you to run from your bed to my house, I'd given birth and I was holding the baby up in the air and I'm like, I'm sorry, I'm so sorry. I did it. I did it already. I'm so sorry. And I was apologising for having given birth so quickly. <laughs> Oh, so that's, that's how Joe was in my dreams at that time. And I guess it was just, yeah, manifestation of my concerns about a fast birth and no one's gonna make it and uh, and Joe's commitment to her work. I mean running barefoot breast floppy in the, the rain. rain. Yeah. Home birthing women. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> that's no, yeah. Um yeah. So that's Joe Hunter. Uh, and she's here today uh, yeah okay beautiful all right so we are going to talk through uh let's talk about this mandatory reporting APRA reporting I think a lot of midwives and women and birth workers whoever you are don't really fully fully understand this private midwives get their head around it very very early in their careers because it's it's particularly important for us to know these things but can you give us a background? What is getting reported? What does getting reported mean? And who, who's APRA? What do they have to do with it? Well, APRA is the Australian Health Practitioner Registration Agency. So, um, so they're the umbrella. And then below them are the um, boards of each of the health professions. So chiropractors, doctors, midwives, nurses, everybody is underneath the umbrella of APRA. And then there's the boards below that. And so for us as midwives, we get reported to APRA if 
somebody thinks we're doing something that doesn't meet expected standards in practice. So I'll just go back a little bit, actually. I'll just go back to even how it all started, because my passion for doing this research started with my own midwife, who um, I had Maggie Leckie Thompson as my midwife for my babies at home. And she was reported lots and lots of times to what was the HCCC then. They they didn't have um, APRA back then. And as a result, she she was a very well-known midwife in Sydney. Like if anything was ever on the news about home birth or anything about midwifery, she was the spokesperson for home birth and was very sought after by the home birth community. And so in a way, she had a bit of a target on her back because of that. And at the time, the political climate was really much more full on than it is now. And there weren't really any guidelines around what was acceptable practice for home birth and for midwifery. And so those women that were before us really just were making it up as they went, you know, and and supporting women's choice and just doing it on the fly. Um, Amazing, amazing work that they did. And thank God they did it for us who came up, you know, after them. But so anyway, Maggie ended up being deregistered and there was a big court case. It was huge. You know, I I was quite involved in supporting her through that. Um, She was on the front page of every newspaper. And actually what we know now is the for the main case that she ended up being deregistered for, the the, uh, prosecution's obstetrician witness person, I just can't think of what they're called, Anyway, the person that came in to speak about what is acceptable practice was actually Graham Reeves, who since then has been imprisoned and named the Butcher of Bega for, yeah. So his, his evidence was used against Maggie which ended up being the evidence that ended up having her deregistered. Did she deregister herself or did no. they deregister her? She, she was deregistered, yeah, and based was, on the evidence that was given. And one of those people, this, the the main obstetrician who was giving evidence against home birth basically and Maggie's practice was Dr Graham Reeves, the butcher of Bega, who is now, well, I don't, I, don't think he, I don't know if he's still in prison, but he was imprisoned for many years for mutilating women's genitals. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anyway, so so yeah. going back to that, so that that's where my um, passion for this subject started. And then when I went into private practice, a lot of my colleagues were going through being reported and I was sort of supporting them through the process. And then four years in, I was reported and had to go through the whole process. So I had conditions put on my registration and I had a supervisor and it was a hell of a lot of work and a ton of stress that happened over sort of six to eight months and then it was found that, you know, nothing. So basically while they were um, investigating what the report was, I had conditions placed on my registration until such time as they had looked at it all and decided whether or not I was capable of working. So I had a supervisor that I had to meet with monthly and go through all of my clinical notes and make sure I was doing the right thing. And then they found that there was no case to answer and they they threw it out. And I think around that time too, Joe. From from my memory is that the midwives didn't trust that reporting process. Like the 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 process of it was really clunky and not well thought out and disorganized. Yeah. And it took, I remember reports taking ages to be resolved yeah. just because of the really bad process. Oh, like sometimes it was a year to be resolved. Yeah. And yet, you know, the, a report would be made and the midwives would be given, you know, a week to get all of their information together and send it all in and then they wouldn't hear anything for months. You Is know, it still they like would, that? 
I I believe not. I believe it's much more streamlined and, you know, it's a much quicker process now. Yeah, and I think they, I think the realization that there there is a lot of vexatious reporting that's happening. You know, I think that's a that's a big realization within APRA and the HCCC now as well. And it's just such a waste. Of, like so many of those reports is such a waste of time and energy and taxpayers' money. And you know, the tiniest little things like some of the things that uh, that midwives were reported for that I interviewed were just ridiculous. You know, I mean, I'm not going to go into them because that's their personal story. But yeah. Um, and so APRA, I imagine, yeah, have twigged onto the fact that uh, that people can sometimes habitually report private midwives and by the sounds of it, they're kind of getting a little bit sick of it too because, as you said, it's, it's a waste of their resources and it takes them away from actually investigating practitioners who might be genuinely dangerous. Like Graham Reeves, the butcher of Vega. Okay. No, like, yes, absolutely. Um so yeah, I think the the process is much more streamlined. I don't think it's as happening as much anymore either. I think I think you know 15 years ago and more back to Maggie's era, I mean home birth was such a fringe dwelling place. You know, I think it's much more acceptable now. I think it's I mean it's still not mainstream, but it's people know about it. Yeah, and birth in your lounge room, what it's are you not, talking? It's not hitting the headlines anymore as being unsafe and dangerous like I remember being in uni and those first years out it was always it felt like you know there was always a front page of the newspaper but I you know I feel like really with Carolyn Homer's study in 2019 that proved the safety around publicly funded home birth I feel like publicly funded home birth models have definitely boosted social social media has done a lot I think you know people and birth time and podcasts and like all of everything that we're all doing all together I think has all contributed into seeing it as a really you know great thing that women can do and the research around it showing that it's as safe as hospital birth if not safer if we're looking at emotional well-being so yeah, I feel I feel like there's been so much work from so many people that have actually you know helped get us to this point. It's yeah. so much better. I mean, I I don't know about you, Mel, but I can remember going into the hospital, transferring in, and just like you know putting your putting your helmet on and going, oh God, what are we going? What's going to happen here? You know, and yeah. I, I absolutely don't do that anymore. You know, at all. I feel like you know myself and the women that I trans transfer are pretty well respected mostly on yeah most of the time definitely for the most part I I used to really prepare women for transfer like okay here's what we can expect and now it's like yep it's okay no no we'll be fine there like really quite confident I mean I can speak into my own experiences of being reported as we go today because I've had three reports um and total time wasters I mean yeah but um I think we interrupted your a bit of background about APRA. So we've got APRA, the registration body. Yeah. And, and then I guess because a lot of women that choose home birth, the very reason they choose it is to re- to have their autonomy and to be in control of what happens to them as, as much as you can in birth and, and be in control of the environment. And so we're starting from a place of it already being different to what happens in, in a hospital setting. So when we then are reported and taken, taken, we're looked at by a system that doesn't understand the way that privately practising midwives work. So, yeah, you, you, we're kind of on the back foot already. But 
it feels like we're just not being judged by our peers at yeah, all. And I think that it's being judged by your peers. That's the important part because the same way as we look at hospital processes and go, whoa, what are they doing? Like that's insane, you know, 40% induction rates and vaginal <laughs> exams every four hours and CTGs. Like we look at that and go, that practice is so out of touch. It's so irresponsible, so unnecessary. I mean, it's the same way that the system is looking at us of like, what? You don't do routine vaginal exams. Like, what do you mean you don't, you know, um, do ultrasound growth scans and this and that or whatever? You know, we're looked at in the I mean, in the same way as we're shocked by what sometimes is offered to women in hospitals. That's how the whole system looks at us, basically. It's a lack of understanding of context more than anything. Yeah, yeah, but it also it's a lack of like you know we we're working with women who are, you know, they don't just I mean one that they seek us out, two they're paying a lot of money to have the experience that they want to have, so they're not just going oh I'm going to have home birth. It's like they've really done their research, so they're starting from a place of being very 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 well informed and really understanding what they want out of their experience. You know that that's where they're starting. And then our job is to support their informed choice, you know, obviously provide them with information to make sure that all of the information they have is coming from a place of being informed when making their decisions. But, you know, from from my perspective, I work with women all the time that make choices that I personally wouldn't make, you know, but it doesn't mean they don't deserve support in that choice, you know. Um, And and that's that's the understanding I feel when we go into a hospital setting and there's a woman that's declining everything or a lot of things that are on offer, it's it's a reflection on who we are. They think it's the midwife that's saying to the woman, don't do that, don't do that, don't do that, whereas actually it's the other way. It's the woman declining it and we're supporting her informed choice to decline. That's something that I really want to get across in this podcast is it's not the midwife sitting here going, you don't have to do any of that. You know, it's us saying these are all the things on offer and it's your, actually your choice. Yeah. How it should be for everybody. And is this what happens, Joe, with with reports to APRA? Is it usually the fact that uh, obviously there's a misunderstanding about, I guess I'm trying to word this in a, in a helpful way, but we do have a broad scope in our practice. So, you know, many, many private midwives are attending women who are planning VBACs at home, people with diabetes, you know, women with high BMI, all these things that would normally be classed as higher risk in a hospital and and really be imposed upon in their, women are imposed upon in their labours because of these things. We're doing these things at home quite comfortably. How does that play into the reporting process that we are operating in that scope? Well, the, out of the midwives that I interviewed, so the way that I did it was I, I put out a, a request for anybody that had been reported that would might want to be interviewed, and I had 17 responses. And by the time I'd interviewed eight, so it, they were quite in-depth, sort of semi-structured interviews, I had met, met saturation. So that means you don't get any, you're not getting any new information from the midwives. So that's where you, you end, end the research and then all the interviews. And then you start, you know, pulling out the themes in those interviews. So I reached saturation when I got to eight. And every single one of those eight midwives were reported by another health practitioner. It was never by the woman or the family. And in fact, they were all very well supported by the families that they were reported about. And they were all by other health practitioners 
on transfer to hospital when they were supporting women that chose care outside of guidelines. So a vast majority of them were women who were having a VBAC or planning a VBAC at home and ended up transferring. But, you know, even the fact where one of them was reported because she supported the woman to have a home birth. And this is this is the thing, isn't it? It's And like you said, it's not the women who report their midwives. It's other practitioners who... Uh, who have really made assumptions because I know when I got reported, the first thing I heard about it was from the HCC, the Health Care Complaints Commission, telling me that I'd been reported for this uh, circumstance. It was when I transferred a woman into hospital. Uh, nobody, the, the hospital didn't ask me for my records or my recollection like, of what, what happened in my notes. It was just was just reported. And I think that's an important point that people need to know is it's practitioners reporting other practitioners, not women, not dissatisfied women or endangered mm. women who have gone ahead and reported their midwife. And the vast majority of the time the women are completely horrified by the fact that their midwife has been reported for some, for supporting their choice. And I think people, you know, culturally were like, oh, if you got reported, something really bad must have happened. So, yeah. But often, definitely from what I've heard, from private midwives, it's often just the fact the transfer has taken place, even though the transfer is a part of providing safe care. And that, you know, if if we were to be providing um, respectful care to each other as colleagues, respectful peer care, we would celebrate that and go, wow, isn't that wonderful that you've transferred in? Welcome. That's what we're here for. I think we're things definitely changed. I feel things definitely changed a lot in the Blue Mountains and, uh, you know, we're, we're in the environment that Mel and I were working in. Um, I set up a midwife support group and put it, put it, just put it out to a bunch of people and said, I'm just going to do this once a month. It's on a Tuesday night. I had no idea how many people were going to show up. And the first night, 28 midwives knocked on my door. Anyway, what what ended up happening from that is whenever one of us transferred in, it was very likely that one of the midwives on shift that we were transferring to had been sitting in my lounge room debriefing whatever was happening for them in their life and in their career. And it really created a really good collaboration but also a lot of respect for each other in our practice because they realised that we weren't just showing up with our tie-dyed T-shirts and our bow-on drums and a bit of bloody incense, you know, like we're actually professionals. We even have to do twice as many CPD points as, you know, anybody else in the country that's that's uh, as endorsed midwives. Um, and we have a full kit of equipment and we actually know what we're doing. So, I mean, that really did change things. I don't know for you, Mel, but I, I felt like it really changed stuff for me. I feel like there was a change. And we also had um, meetings that t- at that time too at the hospital where we spoke specifically about pathways that could be engaged if the hospital did have a concern about us, was there an intermediate process that could be enacted that would happen before a report needed to be put into APRA? Because this is part of the problem is that if you work in a hospital, there are intermediate processes and disciplinary action that the hospital can take with their own staff. Like an incident report is put in. An incident report, yeah, you know, they call them IMS or, you know, depending on the hospital. There's an incident report, you can debrief it, you can discuss the details. If that staff member needs more support or you've identified some gaps in their practice, that can all be remedied in-house, right? Private midwives don't have any of that governance, none of that support from the system. 
And so if people perceive, even think that maybe we're doing something that's dangerous or outside of usual practice, there's no in-between process. It's either uh, do nothing or put in a report to APRA. Uh, it doesn't, and if, if there was going to be some kind of other process, that person who had the concern with the private midwife would have to go to that private midwife and have a discussion. And so this is where, you know, APRA reports are supposed to flag with our registration body a concern about our registration and APRA or the HCCC has to decide how they're firstly potentially going to rehabilitate that that clinician in a way that makes them a safe practitioner or they're deemed too dangerous to even be a registered practitioner and they get deregistered. So it's not a it's it's not designed to be like a troubleshooting process or a brainstorming adventure on how can we um, make this midwife a better practitioner. It's um, how can we understand the way how can we understand the way in which she's practicing too? Right, and I think that's what happens here, especially these big institutions. That lack of connection has gone and yeah. so there is no empathy there is no care and it's just another box of tick so let's tick it and report them and get it over and done with without actually thinking of the significance that that can mean for not just the person you're reporting but the people in her environment professionally and personally yeah but Absolutely. I do think Joe, I think that that kind of activity and behavior around midwives coming together makes a massive difference and you know, it was working for a long, long time. And then I did get a very surprise report from one of our local hospitals who, you know, in my head, I was like, what? what? I've been transferring to this hospital for 15 years. And this is really the first major issue that, that you know, like I didn't even get told that I was reported. I got an email from the HCCC to say, hey, just so you know, you've been reported. And when I read the report, I mean, I'm happy to share the story. This was my second report. The first one came during COVID. I did an educational video about the COVID vaccine. Uh, the Australian College of Midwives loved it. They put it into their training program. They thought it was fabulous. It was all evidence-based. It was, you know, but as I was making that video, I said to my husband, I think this is the thing that's going to get me reported to APRA. So in my head, I was like, right. One day I'm a private midwife and at that time I had been for maybe 12 years or so. I was like, I haven't had a report yet. But in my head, I'm like, this is inevitable. The longer I work in private practice, this is going to happen. So, yeah, lo and behold, absolutely, someone didn't like that that video, reported it to APRA and to their credit, they sent me an email and said, hey, oh, someone's reported this. And it was it was an anonymous report. So this is the other thing. They can be made anonymous. Some yeah. random yeah. person can just put in a report and make a statement and APRA is required to act on it. They can't just go, oh, this is ridiculous. They have to send it through the process. Um, to their credit, APRA was like, look, don't provide anything. We've got everything we need. Just don't do anything. But wait for a result. I felt very strongly that I hadn't done anything wrong. So I wasn't particularly stressed but the the time that I got reported by one of the local hospitals um there was it was pages and pages of of um information uh and the situation was that I was at home with a client that she'd had her baby uh she had a subsequent bleed which we'd managed 
her observations and everything were fine. She was well and healthy. Placenta was out. The bleeding had stopped. The baby was feeding. She was sitting up quite happily eating, doing all the things. And as we were preparing to leave and we were, you know, we were checking on her because she'd had a bleed. We were doing obs all the time and confirming everything had stopped and all the things and writing it down and documenting um, then as we were getting ready to leave and did one more set of obs to make sure, yeah, we're still good, four hours later, blood pressure started to change, her pulse started to go up. I'm like, whoa, we're not, no, we're not going to leave leave this. And we phoned an ambulance. I said to her, look, things are changing. You have lost some blood. Let's transfer for some assessment. Let's, you know, um, let's get this checked. It was in the peak of COVID and I'd rung the hospital and I said, hey, I'm sending a client in. She's coming in by ambulance. Here's the story. Can I come with her? And they said, no, you can't come. No visitors. Just the one person can come in. And and I'd called the hospital three times before the ambulance had arrived because the ambulance had taken 45 minutes to get there. And I'd given them an update. She left in the ambulance, arrived at the hospital, which was across the road from where she lived. But we couldn't get her there because she was in an apartment. And long story short, she'd lost more blood in the in the time where I'd called the ambulance to get to hospital. Uh, yes, and six weeks later I was reported because she arrived, well, firstly the report said that I did not attend the hospital with the woman. So that was the first complaint, <laughs> um, no. which I was told not to attend the hospital. And because I didn't, they put in a report. Um, the other thing was that she lost over what they would consider an appropriate amount of blood. And what else was there? Oh, the delay in transfer, which, you know, they if they had had a look at my notes, they would see that she had every medication we could offer, IV fluids, regular observations, prompt call to the ambulance when observations changed. She lived close to a hospital. She was booked at that hospital. She was a low-risk woman. All of the things that would have been expected of us was all written in the notes very clearly, very thoroughly. And when I had the opportunity to put that into the HCCC and they read it and had a look at it, they said, everything looks amazing. You've done a great job. You've got nothing to answer to. But boy, did it take me almost an entire week to get together the paperwork and the documentation that they needed in order to do a thorough investigation. And how easy this could have been if if the hospital had called me and said hey can you talk us through what happened why did this woman turn up to the hospital without you having lost blood and why was it so far from her birth and I would have told them the story and showed them the notes and they would have seen what had happened and had a level of understanding that would not have required them to go ahead and put an APRA report in and so it's that kind of stuff it's not like this woman had a bleed and we didn't identify it and we didn't do anything. Yeah. It's just that they didn't have, they said, oh, we don't have a process for reporting this incident in our system. And so we decided to report it to APRA. I'm like, APRA is not an incident reporting system. And so there's a real deep lack of understanding. I mean, we since then, Joe, because of the work you had done prior as well, I said, look, I think we all need to meet again. And actually, can we come up with a process that we could all agree that we will enact? If this happens again, if a midwife brings a client in and you're thoroughly confused about what happened, 
before that person turned up to hospital. Could we have a process, an intermediate process, before someone gets in, reported to APRA that we can just have a chat and maybe clear some things up? Happy to submit my notes to you if you wanted to have a look at that. And and it was agreed, yeah, they don't. They said we don't want to report people either. It came from all the way to the, from the top saying that we had to do this. We didn't want to do that, but we couldn't offer an alternative option as to what we could do next. So now that we've got a process in place, as a result of me having been reported, we all sat down together and went, what could we do differently? And they said, hey, maybe next time we'll give you a ring and have a chat. And would you be open? (laughs) Like, yeah, that would be, you've got my number, you've got my email. Like, I think we follow each other on Facebook, actually. And so, yeah, now, and we did get to enact that. There was another situation where a woman got transferred in, you know, um, and they rang me and went, hey, we all want to sit down and have a chat about this transfer. I'm like, great, completely open. We sat down. There was a pediatrician, an obstetrician, the educator, myself. And the outcome was is, yep, we're all happy with, we've all got the story straight. We all kind of reflected on the situation and nothing more to do. So, yeah, and I think I think things have changed as well for the midwives transferring in because because you know twenty years ago how the political climate was such that everyone was being reported all the time and so everyone was always a bit cagey. You know, going in, it was kind of like, oh, I don't want to hand my notes over. What are they? You know, all of that stuff. Whereas now, it's I feel like there's a lot more respect and discussion. And, you know, I, I go in being thankful because that's why we're there, right? I mean, you know, I, I remember one long time ago, I was in my probably first year out, I had a woman that was planning a home birth after a Caesar. And anyway, long story short, we ended up transferring in and she did, after several hours at the hospital, end up having a repeat caesarean. And when she came back into my care at home and, you know, the baby's blue book, the obstetrician or whoever had written in the blue book, reason for caesarean, failed home birth was the reason for the Caesar. And I ripped it out. I ripped the page out. I said, we're not having that in your book, you know. But I was, you know, I always felt like when a transfer happens, it's actually a successful home birth. You know, we, we, we're escalating at the right level of care at the right time, you know, and we're keeping the woman and her baby as safe as possible but also with the experience that she wants, right? So, when, say, say for instance, somebody planning a, a birth center birth and then, you know, things deviate from normal and it's an appropriate transfer into the labor ward to escalate care to get more whatever that woman needs, it's, it was never looked at like that with a home birth. It was always like a failed home birth, you know, yeah. and I feel like that is changing. You know, it's, it's almost that mentality too of a um, that you're a burden on the system. Mm-hmm. Whereas actually using the system for exactly what it's intended for, obstetric care, as yeah. opposed to physiological care. Like home birth is is the complete opposite of a burden on the system. It actually allows for more capacity on the, in the system because what they don't see is all the home births that don't transfer. And that's the thing, right? That was that's one of the things that, you know, I've not I'm speaking to the people that I spoke to, but in some of the papers that I read in in order to do the research. And there were a lot of a lot of them were American papers. Part of the issue was that the only time most of those practitioners that, that work in a hospital ever hear about home birth is when there's a transfer, mm-hmm. and you know they don't hear about the other ninety seven births that happened at home before that. You know, don't see all the other ones. You know that that have gone incredibly well. And I want to celebrate you, Mel, for what you did there, and also acknowledge 
or perhaps ask, do you think you would have had capacity for it had you not had the connections in the community before? Because what that took for you was to actually stand, own your own feelings, right, to not blame others, but to actually sit in your centre, which takes a hell of a lot of inner work, and go, okay, I'm going to come to this in, in balance and I'm going to meet this situation neutrally and work out a better future, whereas to do that, I mean, most of us are acting from those younger parts of us that are feeling like we're in trouble, that we've done something wrong and then wanting to be angry at, you know, our parents or the system or the people who reported us. And so then what plays out is often further distancing and further disconnection. And when we feel in that state, that's that real deep younger part of us that never actually learned that mistakes can be a beautiful offering, that um, can bring connection, that can bring safety and and enable better things to come from them. Most of us grew up in a world where mistakes, and I'm using mistakes in inverted commas because I'm not saying you made a mistake at all, but that's how it can be seen as in our culture, right? But for you to be able to do that, there had to be some kind of groundwork, which I'm really seeing is that connection in the community also being there, but also that's part of your personality, right? And so for people just starting out, for people that haven't done this, this whole process can feel incredibly emotionally big and the capacity to do that you know almost debilitating like not even a not even possible to be able to go and go okay well how can we move forward from this and make it better for all of us because this process is isn't this process isn't serving us like that takes a lot of effort well I think there was you know in that journey there was a lot that paved the way to that is this the time obviously that had been around the pre-work that had been already done at these facilities that they knew us and we knew them. So I had an email and a phone number and I knew exactly who to contact and I knew they would also be receptive and that probably they were having the same struggle as I was with the system that like, gosh, this seems really out of character for this service to be acting this way. What's going on? So really coming at it from some level of understanding that there's been a mishap, there's been a gap like something's fallen through the cracks and then and now this has happened so I mean right I I run a mentorship for private midwives and in there there's a whole module about being reported and the very first suggestion that I have is actually to always be aiming to do do an incredible job like always be striving to do really really well clinically in your actual clinical work but also in your documentation and what really stood out when I got the report, you know, I, I sat down, first thing I did was read my documents because I knew the only thing that I've got to rest on here in this report is whatever I've written down. It doesn't matter what I did, even if I was an incredible practitioner, if I've written two sentences about what I did in that 45 minutes, I'm screwed. Mm. And so when I looked back at the notes, I read them and I felt such a level of calm after reading through the notes. In in the woman's notes were all of the blood tests and tests she'd ever wanted, the referral from her GP, the facts that I sent to the booking hospital with her booking, um, all of the antenatal care we'd done, every single, like, every everything was in there. In fact, the notes brought back things for me that I'd forgotten that we'd done for that woman. And I was like, I can see the most beautiful story unfolding here in these notes. And so I just always encourage midwives to really focus on being a quality practitioner at the first, at the outset 
always striving to do better and then really concentrating on excellent, excellent documentation. And so once I could rest my mind knowing I've done everything I possibly can, then you have to submit to the process, the reporting process, and then see what positive change can come out of this, what learning and how can we make it better. But um, Joe, can you talk to us about what what happens when a midwife gets reported? What and how many midwives? Hang on, first question. How many private midwives? Are you going to private practice midwifery? What should be the expectation? How many midwives get reported to APRA? Well, the research that I did was in 2017. It actually took me a really long time to do this research. I, I, you know, normally you can do an honours part time over two years, and it took me four. I mean, partly I was I had a full time practice and I was making a doco, but also because it was just so close to home, like the the information, and I had it was I was very emotionally invested in it, and I had to keep putting it down and walking away because I just needed space from it. But we also understood the importance of the research because there was nothing like it. So back in 2017, I think there were 241 midwives who attended home births across Australia who were in private practice. I think that's, that number's more now. And approximately half of them had been reported. So, so it was really, yeah, I mean, if midwives enter into private practice, we really should be having the mindset of not if but when we get reported. I mean, it's the reality, isn't it? Yeah, it is the reality. Um, didn't 100% of midwives that privately practice for home birth get audited? Yeah, that was a big process can that we, happened. Things can we changed. speak to that? Because that's huge. Yeah, every single midwife that worked in, in home birth was audited. It, that was a massive process. I was under the impression that that was going to happen sort of on a three-yearly basis, but it hasn't happened again, thank goodness. Um, I don't. I think there was backlash about that because it was really disproportionate they, yeah. and there was a bit of upheaval about well, how dare you actually audit every single private midwife, but they were looking at compliance with the safety and quality guidelines. That's right. And and they wanted to know, they created these safety and quality guidelines to govern our practice. They wanted to know how the midwives had applied that in their practice, if they were, if there was compliance. And my understanding is that everybody, but there were, I think there were two midwives who's who needed to do some work in their practice as a result of that audit, but every single other midwife passed that audit. Mm. Yeah. And so, Joe, what can we expect? So if slash when we get reported to APRA, what's the process? Um, so you normally get an email first up. Um, I have to say every time I get an email from the nurses and midwifery board, I'm like, hmm, what's it going to say? And then it's like. It's even just their NMBA. newsletter, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they said the NMBA sends a newsletter, which is horrific yeah. because. Yeah. When do we ever hear from our registration body? I know. Except for yeah. us when there's drama. Yeah, so that you get an email first up. And it depends on what it is as to how the process works. It's normally sent to, if it goes through up or it's sent to the HCCC um, and also with, with the nurses and midwifery board, it's often sent to the HCCC too. So they're the people that actually look at the complaint and investigate it. And then you'll be given information about what is expected of you in terms of what you need to send in to prove that you're, you know, doing the right thing or whatever the, the situation was, you know. So if if there's a specific situation, they're going to want to have the notes from that case 
they want you to do a CV proving that you've done all your CPD points and that you are actually following the safety and quality guidelines and that you are up with your registration and your insurance. Um, so it's a big process. It's a lot, it takes a lot of time and a lot of work to actually get all that information together. And usually you're not given very much time to do it. Um, and then, yeah, and then you wait. You send all of that through and you wait to get a response. So, And when, uh, when I got reported, yeah, they asked for a CV, which I didn't have because I've been self-employed for over 15 years now. And so it took me a day to do that. And then, yeah, the CPD, they want to see the last two years of CPD, which I just had, it was very haphazardly collected. And so I had to really put all of that in one place and then a full record of the woman's notes and a response to the complaint. So you had to actually type up, like, how are you going to respond to this complaint? They yeah. gave given I've, me I've supported quite a few midwives in that process now too mm-hmm. and you know, using evidence to back up your practice is a really good way to respond to evidence to, for whatever, trying to find actual research that's backing up your, your decisions and your clinical decision-making. And um, not oversharing too. Like I think a lot of midwives get into the trap of trying to go on the defensive. Yeah, just answer the points. Yeah, give them just they, they didn't ask about that last woman. They just they just want to know exactly yeah. to address the complaint, yeah. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Mm. And then I believe they meet monthly and they that yeah. now they would address each response. The so, follow-up. yeah, within the month and you might hear back, I think they have to do a report, they write up a report and their response. So the process isn't months and months anymore. It could be two months depending on the timing of their meetings. Uh, and one thing I learned when I got reported is that they actually allocate you a kind of caseworker and and this person is your contact person and they're there to kind of answer your questions. And they're basically responsible for your case. And I remember phoning them and asking questions and they're like, and, and they said, I just want you to know that I'm allocated to support you through this process. It's like, what do you mean? She said, we don't want to deregister people. We actually want to support people to stay registered. And- this is how it's changed because mm. before now, like, you know, 20 years ago, it was very much a disciplinary reaction, whereas now it's more of a reflective process mm-hmm. for, for midwives to actually look at, you know, how could things may have been, if there was a, you know, a, a poor outcome or something like that, what could I have done differently if there is anything that might have, you know, created a, a better outcome for that woman and baby? Um, which is appropriate. I mean, we do that all the time, you know, all the time. I'm forever doing it with my colleagues, you know, talking about I wonder if, you know, if we had have transferred at this point, maybe, you know, whatever it is. Like it's, mm-hmm. of course, you're always doing that as a practitioner, but to actually do it in a formal way and prove that you're actually working in a very reflective way mm-hmm. is um, it's what they want to hear. It's what everybody wants to hear really that you're learning from the whole time and we're forever learning in this job like you never ever like every day is a school day right yeah and- but particularly and you know I mean I'm 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 sure you do too Mel like work with a lot of women that care choose care that's outside guidelines and understanding that that is a human right and also understanding the process that you do as a midwife in terms of records and understanding and that's there's a very clear pathway in the Australian College of Midwives guidelines 
to follow if women choose care outside of them. And it's the, the record of understanding and you do it together and it's to ensure that that woman has all the information that she that is available to her in order to make the choice that she's making. Mm-hmm. And we're not just sitting there going, oh, you'll be right, don't worry about it. Yeah, and I think this is the power of the documentation. Yeah. Uh, because, yeah, it doesn't matter how much education you've given, if you didn't write it down, it didn't happen. Yeah, that's right. And also the safety, you know, I always say the safety in home birth is the relationship. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's the relationship so important. I just want to offer to anyone that is, is working in these models or wanting to start publicly funded home birth models as well that it, it's all the same stuff. It all comes down to relationships. No matter who you are and where you're working, it really comes down to building a relationship with our peers and our colleagues just like we are so capable of building with the women and families that we care for. Like that is a skill that midwives have and we need to really look at if there is resistance for us, why that resistance is there with our colleagues and us actually having a really good relationship to provide effective care. And if it hasn't been there in the past, please don't let that stop you from creating it in the future because people change. I mean, we just look at what's happened in home birth, right? And when you and I, or the three of us started studying what what the maternity world was like and how much growth there has been possible. Absolutely. Yeah. So Joe, your research really asked midwives what their experience was of being reported. So we I feel like we've yeah, the backstory is there. What happened once midwives were reported, what did you find? So there was there was a heap of sub themes, but there was an overarching theme. That came from all of the midwives that was um, that we called being caught between women in the system, and that was a quote by one of the midwives that we normally, when you pull out themes, you use a quote from one of the midwives. But it kind of encapsulates what everybody's feeling is, and that was the 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 sort of overarching feeling from all the midwives that they felt very much caught between women in the system. And there's there's actually a quote that I actually really want to read because that was one of those quotes where I went, "Oh, that's a good one. That that I wrote that really well." And I can't say it any better than what how it's written, but this is kind of encapsulates that. Right? It says, women have the right to bodily autonomy and the right to decline care. Yet for the private midwives in this study and the women they cared for were not supported by a system where a significant gap exists between ethical and clinical guidelines. When women exercise their right to decline recommendations and midwives support women's informed choices, Midwives find that they are sometimes working outside clinical guidelines whilst also working within ethical guidelines, right? Um, So therefore, whilst the fundamental concept in Western maternity care of autonomy and choice exists, the reality does not always match the rhetoric, okay? So privately practising midwives appear to be caught between the women they care for and the expectations and understandings of the mainstream system about how safety should look. And that kind of says it all. Just in that quote, that really actually just says it all. That's like the mic drop of your paper. And this is the problem, isn't it? Is that the overarching theme is that women were caught between the, uh, sorry, midwives felt caught between the women and the system. And then there were six actual themes that emerged from it. So there was the suppression of midwifery, was one of them. A flawed system, so the, the actual reporting system, but which we've already spoken about and which seems to have um, sort of fixed itself from, from when I did the research. A lack of support for the midwives, so um, there wasn't really any formal sort of body like the su- supported midwives, particularly privately practising midwives, through being reported. 
um, devastation on so many levels. So how it affected the midwives, both personally and professionally, and how it affected their mental health. I mean, there were some midwives that actually had, you know, suicidal thoughts and experienced PTSD from the reports, um, making changes in the aftermath. So that was looking at how they changed their practice. And that was really interesting. Like some of that, let me just have a look because I remember reading this one part that I'd written, um, making changes in the aftermath. So some some of the midwives made changes to their practice and in some cases their careers after they were being, after they reported. So some of them actually either became academics or stopped working as midwives altogether. And their responses ranged from feeling really angry about the situation to complete and utter despair and emotional upheaval. And emotions wavered throughout the, the, the process. And then the last one was walking a tightrope forever. So that was about because once you've got a report and you get another report, that first report can be reopened and re-looked at. That's This is another thing that's that becomes a bit of an issue because even if that that first report has been thrown out as no case to answer. It's then assumed that if you have one, two, three, four, five more reports, there must be something wrong with the practice and therefore we can look back at all those other reports. So it feels like it's an ongoing thing forever once you've had one report. Well, that's still part of the process. So the first report I got for the COVID video, they said, you know, there's nothing to answer for, you haven't done anything wrong, but just so you know, this is staying on your report and we can revisit it. Um, Same with the second. And then the third one was for this podcast. Somebody didn't like that um, women were choosing not to have GBS swabs after listening to our GBS episode. That was the crux of the complaint. Fortunately, APRA didn't even tell me there was a complaint. They just sent me a letter to say, hey, this complaint came in. We've dealt with it. There's nothing to answer. But that's three on my record now, all of which I've been deemed completely at no fault of. And it was all an unnecessary report, but it doesn't seem to matter. It's still on there. Yeah, and it will they'll stay there forever. Yeah. The the vault's closed, it's it's put away, but it doesn't mean that, you know, they, they won't reopen it if at some stage in the future there's another report. What else did we find? Um so the majority of the information that was found was, like I said before, was when women chose care outside guidelines that the midwives were reported for it. Mm-hmm. And the only way, like you say, Mel, that we can support ourselves through that is to have really good documentation. And it's not going to stop you from being reported, but it will stop it from going further if you are reported, if you've got really clear, good documentation. Yeah. And mm-hmm. and I talked to midwives about, so I've got a folder in my computer, in my midwifery folder um, that is is for HCC complaints. It's got my updated CV in there, my updated CPD, you know, everything that I might need to send as evidence is already in there so that if I do get a complaint, it's not the the full week of responding that I had to do last time. Yeah. You've got your you've got your CV up to date and ready to go. <laughs> everything it's like if I get a report, it's like boom, here you go, one, two, three, send, send, send. You write your response, you put your notes in. So Joe, I wanted to ask about the fear of it, the fear of having got getting a report, because I have heard of midwives who just just the whole process of being reported is almost the final straw. They just give in their registration and they they just want to give up after that. Yeah, yeah. Um, but the other option is that we confront these reports and respond, 
and and overcome it. Have you got any advice, knowing what you know about the process, any advice to midwives about how they can work through being reported? I think find yourself a really good mentor or somebody that is your support person through it that will make all the difference and and preferably somebody who's also been through it themselves and they're not going to be hard to find, let's face it. That's probably the biggest thing is to really get some support from A or some colleagues through the process. I know that we've all been there and we've all come through it pretty much. We've all come through it okay, you know, just a little bit wiser for it at the end. Yeah, get really be good at your documentation. That's so important. It's so, so important. And try to, it's a a difficult one because one of the things that came up in the research was that some some midwives did change their practice. Um, And even one of them, the comment that one of them made was, I have become uh, one of the, uh, what did she say? I've become a midwife that I didn't want to be. And part of that was out of fear of being reported and therefore not always supporting um, the choices that women make that tend to be a little bit left of centre when they're choosing home birth. Um, And I think for the general public and and people that are having opinions about that, I think try to be a little bit empathetic towards what's happening for that midwife in that she is trying her very best to support women's choice but the fear is overtaking her of what might happen to her if she does in any given scenario. And that's, I don't know how to change that. I don't know. I think, I mean, everybody's got their own version of what they're okay with and and their own line in the sand of how far they'll go in terms of outside guidelines and supporting women's choice. Um, Well, the reality is, is that we could go way outside our comfort zone and support women in decisions that, uh, that could get us reported. And Anytime, I mean, my colleague and I, my work wife and I, we always talk about, hey, would would we do this at home? And I said, well, we just, I always think about if we're going to make a decision to to support a woman in something that she's planning that, that is outside our comfort zone, can we confidently sit in front of a panel of three people and defend why what we did was the best and safest for that woman and what we chose to do? Um, and why we felt that that was appropriate. So if you can defend that from your experience, your scope, the education that you gave the woman, the CPD education you've done for yourself, the research, you know, all of that, if you can sit there and go, yes, absolutely, I can defend my practice, then that's one thing. But if we're asked to make this, if we're asked to do things from women that we don't have, it's out of our scope. So, for example, if someone said to me, hey, would you attend my twins at home? I'd be like, mate, I've seen two sets of twins born in my whole career. Do you really want me to be the the clinician in this situation? Like if, if I were turned around and said, why did you support that? I would have no justification for why I was the best person to care for this woman. So, yeah, so of course I'm going to say to women, no, I don't I don't attend twins at home. Not that I don't believe women should be able to have twins at home. I'm just saying I'm not the best midwife for you in that scenario. You need to find a midwife who's competent and skilled and capable with twins. And so it, I think it's not that we don't want to or that we don't think women should be able to have choices it's just that we're actually identifying our own limitations as well yeah which is practice right it's reflective practice practice. yeah Yeah. 
it's good practice in keeping yourself but also the women you're caring for and their babies safe. I mean, that's really appropriate. But the fact that we have to make clinical decisions based on whether, and I'm not having an opinion on that, Mel, because we all do it, but, you know, that based on whether we can defend our practice in front of a board is really fucked. Yeah. You know, at the end of the day, it should come down to, you know, if we feel safe as a practitioner supporting that woman's choice and that's the woman's choice, then we should be allowed to do it and we shouldn't be persecuted for it. Mm. So I really want to speak to the fact that we actually need a lot of emotional support mm. to move what is sitting there for us because that fear is often connected to just a whole lot of unfelt feelings yet. You know, we have to get angry about the process or feel our grief around it and actually make with it because often the fear that's sitting there is, yeah, it's it's connected to what hasn't been processed yet. And so a big part of this process is actually connecting with somebody who you can work with your, work through your feelings with uh, to be able to feel your feelings, process them, and then move on with strength rather than constriction, which is the fear that many of us move forward with, with after things like this. And, and so many midwives, we've all seen it, leave the practice. Yeah. I mean, oh, I had a question I was going to ask you, Joe. Oh, no, it's gone. I think it was around just the pressures for private practice midwives. And we've got this pressure from APRA, the threat of reports, trying to serve the women. And then when we put boundaries around what we're willing to offer, then almost getting attacked from the birthing at home community about having put those boundaries, but they don't actually understand all the external pressures that we're trying to work within. Um, yeah, I don't know how to say that in a way that's... It's, it, it's really difficult. It's really difficult to, and we're not always going to get it right. Mm. That's, that's kind of where, what, where I've come to with it. You know, we can do our best to try and support every woman and every choice that she makes, but sometimes we're not going to get that right. And, you know, I mean, the research shows that as midwifery has become more regulated the free birth rate has risen yeah you know, so for, for those women I mean that was your research Mel you know yeah, so for well, those women that um you know are really outside guidelines or want complete and utter autonomy and no nothing put in terms of boundaries around their choices then that's the way that they're going to go and that's absolutely a valid choice mm-hmm. however you know, um, from a midwifery perspective, I mean, I value midwifery, you know, and from, from a midwifery perspective, I think we have the ability to offer a very wide range of services to women without having this persecution over our shoulder all the time by doing all the things that we've said, you know, creating really good leadership, creating collaborative, respectful relationships with people in the system, really good documentation. I mean, one of the um, things about me moving to Sydney was I was concerned about how that was going to be because my transferring hospitals were going to change, right, and I spent a long time setting up those relationships and felt very comfortable and confident walking through the hospital doors when I needed to. And then when I moved to Sydney, I was like, nobody knows who I am or what I'm doing and it's just going to end up, you know, I'm going to have to do that whole process again. But what has actually happened is several of the local hospitals have actually contacted me now that they know that I'm here and said, let's meet up. Let's look at how we can work together because we all want the best outcomes for women. It just feels so good to be in this place now. It feels really different. It really does. I mean, it's beautiful progress. 
Mm. Um, and I think we always say we've always said it all throughout the years Mel you know it's not going to happen overnight it's just chipping away and it really like I've seen it happen and you have in 15 years of practicing that the chipping away is actually working I do believe that too and I think you and I have been around long enough to say what it was like 15 years ago when we started I mean we started Joe we didn't even have insurance there was no endorsement process there was no 5,000 hours there you know, that's all paved the way and and midwifery has professionalised. You know, we now we can get Medicare provider numbers and we can write scripts. I mean, we can write scripts for women and, like, patho- get pathology results and ultrasounds and all this stuff that would have been unheard of 15 years ago. Yeah, which is amazing. I mean, I, st- I don't really agree with the 5,000 hours, but anyway, no. that's another podcast. <laughs> I know. I mean, I, I'm, I'm with you, but, I mean, what I'm saying is we walked straight into it. We did, and we were a few actually, Mel. I don't. I think in the whole country, probably you and I, and maybe three or four other midwives, actually went straight from um, uni into private practice. But you know, we were very well supported, and that's the thing. Like, if we had a system where you know midwives could come out, I mean, thankfully, students are now able to come out with home birth midwives, which is great. I've pretty constantly got a student with me at the moment, which is great because they only take some. They only have to go to one home birth for them to understand the difference, you know. Yeah, um, and. I feel like if there was a system whereby, you know, a new graduating midwife could come in as a second midwife and be supported, do her hours like that before she can be endorsed and, and actually be supported in that process and be able to be paid for her work and it's, it will actually change the whole way the system's working. 100%. Absolutely. Yeah. Now, Joe, if someone's come to this, this episode, they've been reported to APRA, that's why they're listening, right? Yeah. Um, what's... So you already told them, find somebody who can just nurture you through the process, preferably someone who's been reported. If you're if you're a member of the... Uh, the ANMF, a, a, Australian Nurses yes. Midwives Federation. Yes. That's yes. it. If you're a member of them, they, they provide a lawyer for you that it, and they get you get a caseworker basically that supports you through it and looks at, you know, when you're writing your defence, if that's how you want to say it, they'll read through it and make sure that there's nothing that they shouldn't be in there or, or say, you know, you can add this, this, this and this to it. Um, if you're a privately practising midwife and you've got your antenatal and postnatal insurance with MIGA, they do offer advice but because there's no insurance for the birth part of the care, if it's intrapartum where the problem is they can't give you um, a lawyer to support you, but if it's antenatal or postnatal, they do. So there's, there's professional support out there. It's just a matter of whether you're connected in with it or not. Um, you could always ring the College of Midwives and ask them for support. There is a process now that they're looking at trying to change so that there is support for any midwife who's been reported. Um, and, yeah, gather gather your peeps around you and just get really strong because the majority of the time you haven't done anything wrong, you know, it's just that it, it looks like it's different practice to what happens in the system. It's really a moment of putting your big girl panties on, isn't it? Mm. I remember I got my report. I phoned the hospital who put it in. I phoned Hannah Darlin because, you know, she's been my mentor from the beginning. I phoned my friend who'd been reported before and the second midwife who was with me at the time. And, you know, all of them said, you know, write your response, send it over, Yeah, let me read it because they'll be reading it with different eyes. And, you know, yeah. the feedback I got from one of them was, 
oh, I felt like I was there. The way you explained it, the way I can see your notes, Mel, it's as if I was in the room by how it was written. And I'm like, oh, great, like it comes across. They can tell you how it comes across. So, yeah, I think really tapping into that. And also if you can, they don't want to deregister you, I think is what I also want to remind people is, is don't look at this and go, oh, that's the end of my career now or this is a big this is a big problem. Just go, right, I need to respond in the least emotional way possible because I have seen some responses and you can read the anger and fear and emotion in the wife's words when they're responding. That's why it's really good to get several people to read through your response for you because somebody that you can be helped to remove that emotion. Yeah. 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 And I had to feel the emotion. Just don't write it down in your response. Correct. You got to feel it. And I think that's the importance of those early conversations um, with your support people is you get to express it all then and then write a really factual response. Yeah. Amazing. Joe, is there anything else you wanted to share today about your research, about the reporting process, anything that's kind of still hovering there that you didn't get a chance to? I don't think so. I mean, I think how you've said it there is that it's not, if you do get a report, it's not the end. Mm-hmm. And and know that there's a lot of amazing, amazing midwives out there who have also been reported and have, and have got through it and you're almost stronger for it. Yeah. And are better practitioners because of it as well and yeah just keep fighting the good fight yeah and I do think if you've been reported that's because you are genuinely supporting women's choice and the system doesn't understand that and so every time the system butts up against uh, this kind of midwifery behavior they learn something as well yeah Uh, and and I think really thinking about what uh, you know like when I got my report I reached out to that hospital and said how can we how can we Make sure this doesn't happen again. And they're like, yeah, we don't want to do this again. We actually do want a solution as well. So some real good has come out of it. Uh, and, yeah, you get an opportunity to reflect. But it's it can feel frightening. But I think you're right that the process isn't as lengthy and clunky. And it's, it's a lot more user-friendly. And I think it's a lot more sensitive now. Uh, they've understood how how upsetting the process can be and I feel like they have put things in place to make it a lot less stressful. Yeah, I, I, I think so too. It's, it is really different even from when I did that research. It is, things have changed a lot, thankfully. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, just, just you know, get in touch with anybody that can help you through um, and, you know, I'm, I'm happy to be that person for people no. too. Well, I'm going to put uh, your contact details joe not not you i won't be putting your phone number up there or anything but i'll put your <laughs> website up there joe will let you know how you can contact her well, my Insta. Yeah. a lot of people contact me through instagram so yes, instagram. That's yeah yeah and i'll put your website up there and obviously yeah I've, I've been through it too so if you're coming to this having been reported to APRA, you've got at least two people that you can contact and then all the other avenues and if you know any other private midwives there's a 50 percent chance that that they've been reported as well. And being reported does not mean that you are a negligent or underskilled practitioner. All it means is you've butted up against somebody who doesn't understand. Yeah. You know, if your midwife, if you're a woman out there and you're thinking, oh, my gosh, has my midwife been reported? And your midwife says, yeah, have been reported. It's not a reflection on that midwife necessarily. It's more a reflection on uh, the people that that, she's she or he has interacted with who just doesn't understand 
And so, yeah, I think that's another thing is don't think, oh, gosh, that means I'm a bad midwife. It doesn't. It just means you've encountered somebody who doesn't know what to do next and they yeah, don't understand. So, yeah, amazing. Thanks, Joe, for being Thank here. Bee's had to run off so she, she can't say goodbye. But um, See you, B. So you be, yeah. <laughs> really appreciate your time, Joe, and your research because this there's nothing like it in Australia and it really gives insight um, to what we're coming up against. And you know, for anybody Thanks. It's it's good to actually get it out there a little bit because you know, often these sorts of research is just it's just read by academics and it doesn't go anywhere. So it's nice to have it out in the ether a bit. So thank you for the opportunity. Pleasure. And there will be a link to your research in the resource folder. So anyone's on who's on the mailing list for this podcast. Just click on the link to the resource folder and you can read Joe's research there as well. It's accessible to everyone. Thank you, Mel. Thanks, Joe. Bye, love. Bye, darling. Lots Bye. Of love. See ya. See ya. Thanks for listening with us today. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on your favourite podcast platform and join our mailing list at melaniethemidwife.com. Mel sends out weekly emails with access to all the evidence we use in this podcast. You can find out more about Mel at melaniethemidwife.com and find out more about me, B, at coreandfloor.com.au. We can't wait to bring you next week's episode of The Great Birth Rebellion. Yeah! Yeah! <laughs> All right. <laughs>